As Tom laid out last week, he, he didn't have to go to Jerusalem. Um, and when he was on these three trials, he did not have to speak up. Um, he could have kept his mouth shut. He could have just gone on his way. He could have taken the truths that he knew and just looked in a different direction. And in the end, they would have set him free. And he could have just gone his way. But as we read in Matthew 16, 24 through 28, that yeah, there's a way to save your life, but you're going to end up losing it. And it's when we follow the truths of God that you may feel like you've lost your life, but that's when you have everything to gain. So if we go back to that passage in Matthew, I'm going to reread and start a little bit earlier in verse 21. From the time that Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any one of you would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give up in return for his soul? So Paul is staring at these options, this option to believe what God had told him, what he knew. And we, as we went through last week in Acts 23, verse 11, God had told Paul what to expect. And he said, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So Paul's here, not in Rome yet, knowing that that's his end result, that he's going to have an opportunity to go to Rome. So everything that he's doing is guiding. He knows that he's working towards that. So he has the opportunity as he's facing his accusers and the judges to be guiding along and understanding that this is going to end up in Rome. And that gives him comfort. Those believing and believing in what God had told him brings him the comfort to be able to power through the difficult trials that face him. Lord, may you be our guiding light this morning. May our hearts be ready to hear what you want us to, what you want to say. We thank you for your love in Jesus' wonderful and holy name. All right, so. Acts 24. And five days, and after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They lay before the government their case against Paul. So, right out of the gate, we have a group of elders, and they've also hired and brought with them their spokesman or their lawyer or their professional speaker to take care of this for them. And when he had summoned him, Tertullus spoke and said, 
Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. So this was the, the professional spokesman's uh, introduction. And just a little background, um, he, it's not quite accurate, right? <laughs> he, uh, there was not a lot of peace going on under Felix's reign. Um, Felix was not most excellent. Uh, this is a man that uh, was on his third wife, one that he had stolen from a king in a nearby land. And he would soon be removed from his office by the Roman government And he was known for uh, being crooked and uh, receiving bribes. Yet, that's not the way Tertullus remembers it, right? He laid it out, you know, he's sucking up a little bit. He's trying to get him on his good side. Um, And that's where, and then from there he continues. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews and throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accused him. The Jews also joined in in this charge, affirming all that these, all these things were so. So Paul's sitting there as this guy continues with his bad memory, his lies and his hate and his embellishment, and Paul waits and waits and waits his turn. And it was just a good pause moment for me because I know we all face those times, those trials, those opportunities where you're listening um, and people aren't exactly speaking the truth. They don't remember correctly. Um, And a lot of times that could be at your expense. But it's how do we respond when others are spreading lies about us and how do we handle these difficult situations? Uh, Paul waited his turn. Um, And eventually, Felix turns to him and nods, and Paul replies, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust." So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoings they have found when I stood before the council." Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, 
It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So here's Paul talking to Felix, who we've already uh, uncovered a little bit about what Felix is, is like. And Paul is finding that he is happy that Felix is his, his governor in this situation. And Felix was married to a Jewess, uh, Drusilla, and had an understanding of the region and how things operated there. And this is probably why Paul was excited that he was the one uh, governing over him. Um, So Paul laid out everything that he had been doing. And then at the end, he brings to a point, a succinct summary of what the entire dispute is all about. And it comes down to his stance on the resurrection. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. And the same is true for us now. And it all comes down to our view and our perspective on the life of Jesus. Um, Paul also in that, that part, he, put, he confessed and he lays out that they all believe the same thing. They have the same fathers. They believe in the same God. And it really is just that distinction on Jesus that they, dis- that they differ. And the Jewish leaders were failing to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. And that's where the, the difference comes and that's where the dispute rises. Uh, so Felix is now at a point where he's heard both sides and he decides to stall. So we continue in verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysus and the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away from the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So after his trial, Felix keeps him around, and Paul uses this opportunity to share the gospel with Felix. So here's Paul in prison and not being detoured from his mission to spread the good news. Felix was hoping for a bribe, so he kept calling for, for Paul to come, but it didn't change, and we can only assume that every opportunity Paul had, he was using it to share the gospel with Felix. So Paul's in prison, stuck here, and for two years, he's using it to build a relationship with this man and preach the word to him. Um, In the end, Festus is ousted and Felix comes in, or Felix is left in prison, or leaves him in prison, and Festus comes in to rule over now. So then we start in in chapter 25, verse 1. Three days after Festus had arrived in the providence, 
he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning to ambush him to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept in Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. So now we're going to start in in Paul's second trial here in these chapters, and we switch governors here, and we have Festus. And Festus, of the three that Paul faces, Festus was, history best remembers Festus as probably the most um, fair of them, and you'll see that in trial. Festus really ends up being in turmoil about what to do with Paul because he doesn't see the guilt that is put in front of him, but here he is nonetheless. It's been two years that Paul's been in prison, and this lack of belief from the Jewish leaders hasn't gone away, and it's grown. Now they're trying to, they have a plot to kill him. So they haven't changed. They're still holding on to this disbelief, and it's guiding and directing their motives and their actions. So the new governor comes in. He's unfamiliar with the situation, and he tells them, he's like, I got to go figure out what's going on. So he, he heads down. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And on the next day, he took up his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. And Paul argued in his defense Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself very well know. If then am I am... If I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to these charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So in this section, Paul's entire defense of himself is basically one sentence when he says, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. And then Festus interjects and says, well, let's go back to Jerusalem and solve this with your accusers. And Paul, knowing that he's trying to get to Rome, that God has called him to testify in Rome, says, no, I want to go see Caesar. The Jews are still on the same points. They have plenty of serious charges and no proof of them. So Festus finds himself in this point where he has no real evidence to write of Paul and send him off to Caesar and not knowing what to do. Uh, But fortunately for him, uh, King Agrippa's coming. So in verse 13, Festus 
or Paul's going to be before Agrippa and Bernice. So now, now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived in Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a man left by prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had the opportunity to make his defense and concerning the charges laid against him. So when they came together, I made no delay, but on the next day took up my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus, who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So Festus has updated Agrippa on the situation. And he, you can see that Festus understands that Paul hasn't done anything deserving what they're accusing him of. He tried to send him to Jerusalem to solve the religious matter there. And Paul knew that wasn't the way to go. And then Festus even lays it out in verse 19, the one thing that we're disputing here. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. So now it's Agrippa's turn. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definitive to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Paul's waiting <clears throat> all this time, and now he's going to be before Agrippa. And his third governor here, Agrippa, Agrippa II, and Bernice, and the f a little bit of family background here. This is the great-grandson of Herod the Great, and we all remember Herod the Great. Uh, when Jesus was born, he's running around killing all the two-year-olds and under. Um, so this is this man's heritage. This is what's behind him. Um, his father uh, decapitated James, and now he's uh, the ruler of the region, and he's there with Bernice, his um, sister um, and companion, all at the same time. 
Um, the Jews are still shouting for Paul's death. They haven't given up on that. And Festus is still saying there's nothing deserving death here. And we're still centering around, as Paul laid out early on, that this is all just one dispute centering around Jesus. So in 26, Paul's defense before Agrippa starts. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. So he had three governors that were going to hear his case. Two that have a pretty shady background in history and understanding um, of how they ran their lives. But yet those were the two that Paul was excited to hear his case. Those were the ones that he wanted and he made a point to say that he felt fortunate that King Agrippa was going to hear it. And there's a good chance this was because they understood the customs of the area and the Jewish history. In his first to Felix, Paul gave a short couple paragraph defense of his situation. To Festus got one line. And now he's ready to uh, really expand on his situation. So let's jump back in. We are in verse 2. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and the controversies of the Jews. There are, therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day, and for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought inceivable, incredible, that by our God could raise from the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So as Paul opens up and he starts to share his testimony, he starts with where he began. He was one with these Jewish people. He was the Pharisee. He was not a believer in Jesus. In fact, he was persecuting those that did. He was on the attack. He was on the offensive, and he was doing a good job at it. Right? If he did not have this encounter with Jesus that we're going to get to, he, he's, he's their MVP, Right? This is who they were looking at to helping them bring down the way. 
But then something happened. Verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from people's from people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by me or by faith in me. And that's a succinct summary of what drives Paul. There on the road to Damascus, when he met Jesus, Jesus gave him his mission. Continuing in verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance, For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ might suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles." So Paul's laying out his testimony here for Agrippa. He starts with where he was coming from, where, what he was like, what he was doing before he met Jesus. Then he lays out his encounter with Jesus and what God called him to do. And then he, goes, and then he summarizes what he's been doing since then. And it's at this point that Festus, who's still there, kind of runs out of patience. And he says, and in verse 24, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. And then this is where he doubles down. For the king knows about these things, and I to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. 
So Paul's facing his accusers and the governors, and he's challenging them with the gospel. He's challenging them with the truth of Jesus, knowing that that's what is on his heart to see people's hearts changed, whether it takes long or short, that God would meet them. And then that becomes their choice. Agrippa didn't admit it here. He wasn't going to be easily persuaded in his public situation. But nonetheless, Paul laid it out there. Not only that, but his desire for all to know who hear him of the truth of Jesus. In verse 30, Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with him, And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So Paul had quite the trial with these three different governors. And while we don't expect to be put on trial in front of Jewish leaders or the Roman governors or kings, we do face our trials now. And we have to decide daily what we believe about God, about who he says he is, and how we are going to live. Paul went through these three trials, with three, and there's three major roles in each. There was the accusers, there was the accused, and then there were the judges or the rulers. And these trials, this situation all happened because of the failure of the Jewish leaders to believe the truths about Jesus. If we remember Paul and all the Jewish leaders, they all started in the same spot. But it's Paul that's believing the truths and what changed his life. And if we go back to Matthew, Peter was faced in that moment with the same thing. Jesus had told him what was going to happen, what had to happen, and Paul challenged Jesus on that and said this doesn't have to be this way and Jesus told Paul or told Peter get behind me Satan you are a hindrance because you're focused on the things of man and not the things of God the Jewish leaders failed to believe Jesus was the Messiah and had risen from the dead and today our actions are proof that we all have times of failing to believe so our question Now is how does lack of faith in God play out in our lives? And in Matthew 12, 34, it says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the truths that we hold on to in our hearts are dictating our words and our actions. So what are we storing up in our hearts? What do we struggle with? What are we fighting against? Um... This last week I had the opportunity, and before I get in, I have, I have some questions that I'm just going to start running off and posing to you guys. And this is that opportunity um, for how the Holy Spirit's ready and prepared to communicate directly to you. Uh, because there are things in all of our lives where we are failing to believe who God is, who Jesus is, and what he has done. And 
I was talking with my youngest, or both my girls really, but it started with Kendall. And we, we go through a lot of things with our kids. And one of the ones is like you can see where they have some idolatry or where they're worshiping something that they shouldn't be. And a, a week or so ago, I, had, I sat Kendall down and I was again explaining to her this. And, and they, the eight-year-olds really, you know, I, I go way over their head a lot of the time, but um, eventually I think they'll catch up. And so, and I, but I was able to explain to her that the reason that I can see this and I'm here to help you with this is because it's stuff that I struggle with on my own. That I'm closing in on 40 and I've been dealing with myself. So God has given me to you to, to help you with that. And that was the easy part. And then you fast forward a week and I come upstairs and the girls are playing in their room and <clears throat> they had set up some elaborate pulley system with all my exercise rubber equipment. And I calmly you know, got defensive of my stuff and said, you, you got to ask. You can just go and rummage around my room and take what you want to build your things. And I leave, and I'm coming. They're like starting to take it apart, and I was like, and then I, I have to go back upstairs, and I have to tell them. It's like, I was like, Kendall, you remember when we were talking last week, and I told you that the reason I can understand why there are times when I see that you're worshiping your things and those are more important than the people around you or than, than Jesus, it's because I do that. And I did that. I came in here and I was more concerned about my stuff that you guys were using than the fun that you two were having or, or the relationship I have with you. I put those things in front of you. So I asked for forgiveness and we moved on and shed our tears and, and went away. And I think they learned a few things. We'll see. I know I did. Um, but all that to say is that these questions that I have here, um, as I've struggled with them all myself, right? And if, if we don't ask ourselves the tough questions, then we can't find where the gaps in our hearts are for heart change to exist, to become more like him. Um, So these are meant to find those spots where you're displacing God from your ultimate worship. And then with the, the last caveat, if, if the Holy Spirit, if you don't feel a connection to something as to where you might be gapping in that area, then your question becomes, why don't I feel that? Um, so the first one, the first series here, are you fighting for control at work, at home, with your kids, with your parents, in your social, social circles? Does being in control bring you comfort? Does not being in control incite fear? Are you unwilling to delegate? Are you unable to trust? Are you unable to relax? And a reminder is that he who is greatest is in control. And God is great, so we don't have to be in control. Second one, are you fighting for your reputation? Is it important to you what your family thinks of you, your friends, your coworkers, strangers, your enemies, 
Do you alter or control what others can know about you as a way of to manage what they think of you? Do you need credit for things you do and accomplish? Do you have to make known your successes? Do you have a tendency to be proud or arrogant? And our reminder is that the most glorious thing is the only thing that we have to fear. And God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. Are you fighting for value or worth? Are you looking for validation in your role as a parent, as an employee, as a student, as a boss, as a business owner, as an athlete, a scholar, a musician, from religion, from your lifestyle? Is it your goal to show others how good you are? How much you have to offer? Do you hope that in your absence things don't go as smoothly so that you can come across as more important? Is your value or worth tied to your possessions? Do you find security in the temporal? Is your primary pursuit for more? More money, more things, more time? Does accomplishing something, reaching a goal or obtaining a tangible item, what you work for to make you happy? If a source of goodness is promised, then you don't have to keep looking. God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. Are you fighting to be right? How well can you let things go? Does it itch at you endlessly to know that someone else thinks you were in the wrong when you know you weren't? Do you self-evaluate how you are doing in different areas of your life to determine your value? Do you seek others to understand you before you understand them? Is it hard for you to seek forgiveness, admit when you were wrong, or to be humble? And the reminder here is, if you are forgiven, do you need to prove your innocence or worth? Do you need to earn standing? God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. Hopefully, if you've been around a little while, you've recognized a lot of that. Those are the four G's from a book, uh, You Can Change by Tim Chester. It's a wonderful book, and it unpacks those beyond what we would have time for. Um, but it's just a, a snapshot of the evidence of our actions of our lives, of how we're believing who God is and who he says he is. And we know God to be good, great, gracious and glorious and our actions and our words should be a reflection of that. Um, so we're wrapping up Acts. Um, we're going to have our Q&A next week and quickly wrap up the last couple of chapters when Paul finally makes it to Rome and the journey's there. Um, but Acts, and this had been labeled the story of the scent. And today... I titled the sermon, Life in Trials. 
is just as Paul was on trial and facing his trials, we do the same thing today. And we're in trial where we daily have to decide what we believe about Jesus and how it's going to dictate what we do and say. So we have to figure out how we're going to respond as we face daily choices. To believe that God is good, great, gracious, and glorious and make our decisions accordingly. Because now, just as we're wrapping up here, the story of the scent, now we're the scent. And now our stories matter. So what's your story? Does your life demand a gospel explanation? Or another way to look at it, does your story demand a Jesus explanation? Paul's story hinges on the fact that, that Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and changed his life. If Jesus has met you at some point along the way in your life, then your life should look different. Your heart will be changed and will continue to change to be more like his. So, do your actions only make sense because of Jesus? Do your words only make sense because of Jesus? Does the love you offer others reflect the love you've received from Jesus? Do you love in a manner that others can see Jesus and are compelled to know him? If Jesus is changing our hearts and dictating what we're doing and we're believing that he is good, great, gracious, and glorious, then it should be obvious as we go about our days. And it should be creating opportunities to where we have to explain our story because it doesn't make sense to a world that doesn't know him. They will look at an action, an act of love, the way we love one another, and need a reason why because by the earthly standards it doesn't make sense. So that's what we mean when we say does it demand a gospel explanation? Does your story demand that you have to tell people it's because of Jesus that I love this way. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for loving us. Lord, and it is our heart's desire that we would take that love and allow it to impact our hearts and bring us to a point where we understand that there's only two things that matter. And that that's that we love you with all our heart, soul, and mind, and that we love our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, and I know that we don't do that well. And there's times when we fail, and we struggle, and we fear this world more than we fear you. And we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for Jesus. May we hold on to the truths of what he accomplished and what he did and be driven by the Holy Spirit that only makes sense because of the love we've received from you. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' wonderful and holy name. We say amen.